This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we have a very special guest for you on the podcast. His name is Dan Crenshaw. Yes, the one and only Dan Crenshaw. And for like the four of you that don't know who that guy is, he is a retired Navy SEAL. He currently serves as a U.S. congressman for Texas's second congressional district, and he is the best-selling author of the book Fortitude, American Resilience in the Era of Outrage. So his name should be very, very familiar to most of you, if not all of you that listen to this show. He's been on the Joe Rogan Experience a couple of times. He's really one of the future bright stars for the Republican Party and, and a current bright star, frankly. And so we're so happy that we got to spend some time with him today. And we talked about a lot of different issues. You know, we certainly talked about the book because we did name it as our 2020 book of the year and we added it to our book list, the 100 books that every modern Christian man should read. But this guy has insight on a lot of different topics. So we certainly talked about kind of the current state of the Republican Party. We talked about the Biden administration, what to expect, some existential threats that are actually going to be levied against the United States in the coming terms and in the coming years. And so we we got into so many different areas. And guys, this was such a fun interview to do, and I don't want to delay this anymore. So without further ado. Let's get into it. Dan Crenshaw, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Hey, good to be with you. Thanks for having us. Man, we're so happy to have you, especially with all the craziness going on in our two states. Uh, We are covered in ice and snow, which is not normal for us, but I think we will make it just fine. I think the very first thing that we'll go into today is obviously you're a representative of the Republican Party, an up-and-comer in the Republican Party, but there's quite a bit of pessimism right now with the Republicans and with the future of the Republican Party. You know, certainly the, the House is still not in Republican control. The Senate was lost even after two very winnable races, uh, seemingly in the state of Georgia. And then we, we lost the White House as well. But from your perspective, do Republicans have some things to be optimistic about here in kind of the immediate near term? Well, let's talk long term. Um, it's, I mean, okay. there's, there's no elect. There's no elections in the near term, so I see no reason to, uh, you know, you're just on defense right now. Um, but I do think we win the next uh, set of elections if we're smart, if we can come together and, um, and 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 be very clear about the differences and what we're offering as far as policies go. And um, in the long term, we should be somewhat optimistic. Look, we we have a lot more influential voices that I think can speak to a more moderate audience than, than we, than we have in a long time. You know, if I, if I ask somebody who the, who, who is the conservative thought leader and you know, 20 years ago, and you might be like, I don't know, Fox news, maybe Rush Limbaugh. Right. You know, that's fine. But, um, these aren't, these aren't people that are speaking to the next generation by any stretch. Um, you know, it's a very specific audience. Um, it's uh, it's an angry it's an angrier audience. Uh, you know, we I don't I, I think we have to disavow the sort of outrage culture of the right, which is it's just gotten more and more prevalent, and it's not helpful. Nobody is persuaded by you when you're angry, right? Like, I, don't, I don't know how many times I have to say that. And um, you got to be a happy warrior. Um, but the good news is, look, if I asked you who the conservative thought leaders were these days, you'd have a lot of names. Um, you'd have Ben Shapiro, uh, the Daily Wire, and all those guys at the Daily Wire. You'd, you'd have, they're, they're doing speeches on college campuses constantly. You, you could talk about uh, Candace Owens and Charlie Kirk and Dennis Praker. And, um, and you, could, you could point to politicians, I hope like me, that, that, that are persuading people. Um, now, 
and, and there's a lot more to that list too. So there's, there's people who are out there getting the message out, um, using different platforms to do so. And, and just one person at a time getting people to our side. So we're behind the power curve, uh, especially when it comes to these culture wars. But you've, you've got a much larger and, and I think more educated and, and dedicated and effective group of personalities that are fighting these battles. Are we doing it perfectly? No. I think the last few months have been an absolute disaster. Uh, but sure. we can recover. Uh, and we can be optimistic and, and, and win from now on. But just as long as we remember that winning means persuading people. Absolutely. And I think you made a great point saying you're persuading people one at a time. And so when you're losing the culture war or when you don't have the reins of the mainstream media or of Hollywood, you, you kind of have to do a little bit more of a grassroots approach, which obviously the Republican Party can do. One thing that that also speaks to as well is what we see in certain states. So obviously a lot has been made about the state that you represent, the state of Texas, about how you're getting a lot of refugees from California or New York or Oregon or any of these other places. They're coming to Texas and kind of a common refrain is don't California my Texas. But I think that refrain comes from We've seen states like maybe Virginia that skipped the purple phase entirely, right? They went straight from red to blue. Uh, people are assuming that that may have happened with Georgia and Arizona with the the elections that came at the end of last year. But obviously, you know, a lot of people think that the, the constitutional republic we live under is in serious threat of not being there anymore if Texas somehow goes solidly blue. So from your perspective, being in the state, talking to Texans on a daily basis, a lot of them that listen to this show, what are your thoughts on this big influx of a lot of people from blue states into very, very blue areas of Texas, namely, you know, Houston, Dallas, uh, San Antonio, Austin. You know, I, th I think it's a lot more, I think that those that blue blueberry of Austin is, is a lot more homegrown than people want to admit. Um, it's coming from our young people. And uh, yeah, it's transplants to an extent, but look, for the most part, uh, in the aggregate, the transplants understand why they left and um, they vote accordingly. So, the Californians aren't necessarily the problem. What you're getting from California is is generally um, middle class, probably Republican voters who, who can no longer afford to live in California uh, or are just sick of it. Um, you know, J Joe Rogan's a good example. He's very Californian in every sense. Right. Um, he's, he's not some like traditional conservative, but he's very open about the fact that he's like, I think I'll probably vote for what brought me here. Um, as opposed to vote for what I left, you know? And so I think that represents a lot of people. Um, I, I think our focus is in the wrong place. Our focus needs to be on schools and universities where these bad ideas are, are, are gaining more ground. And, um, and, you know, that's harder and that that's harder to hear, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, that, that's where the battle is. It's, it's in our youth. Well, I would agree with that. And one quick follow up to the point that you made about someone like Joe Rogan, who moves from California and comes to Texas. I feel like a lot of voters, and you would probably agree with this, they, they vote with their gut and they vote with their heart, not always with their brains. And so most people, even if they say that they're fiscally conservative now, you know, you see someone say, oh, I'm fiscally conservative and socially liberal. The problem is, is the issues that are in the social realm, like LGBTQ issues and abortion and some other issues like that. Those are the issues that people are having a hard time checking the red box on because they just feel like, oh man, I, I, you know, I want women to have women to have the right to choose. I want someone to feel like they can express their gender in whatever way they want. So, do you feel like people are going to continue to vote, actually, in in whether thinking about taxation or you know 
some of these free market principles or are they going to go with their hearts? Yeah, it's a very frustrating phenomenon. Um, and it's exactly right. It's especially popular amongst millennials to say, well, I'm fiscally conservative, but I'm socially liberal. And they, they say this to like, because they want to, they want to sound smart. Exactly. You know, they they want to sound like you know they're that they're nuanced and they're complex and you know they have different opinions, but they're but they only vote one way. And uh, I've talked to people about this. Now that's changing. I mean, like I I have one person in mind. He's a great great, and I won't say who he is or how he's related to me. But it's um, but it's it's just one person who lives in California who, who's I, I think a true centrist, um, but always voted Democrat until recently. Still can't vote for somebody like Donald Trump. Uh, they just can't. But down the ballot, they're like, you know what? California is getting so bad right. that I just have to vote down ballot just for something else. Um, even though I, and, 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 and th- th- this is somebody who I think is actually being true to themselves when they say fiscally conservative, socially liberal. And then I would ask them, well, then why do you keep voting Democrat? I mean, like, do you really think that if Republicans are totally in charge that all these rights are going to be taken away from LGBTQ people. I mean, what do you think is going to happen? Right. Honestly, because it's not like there's states. I mean, there's plenty of states where that's the case, where where Republicans are in charge of everything. And guess what? Those states have thriving gay neighborhoods. Like, I don't understand what the, like, we are not against the LGBT community. We're just not. We just don't think that they should have extra rights that go beyond what other people have. That's actually the, that is the simplest way to put my position on this. Everybody should have equal rights. And that doesn't mean special favors. So like nothing's going to happen anyway, but they don't believe you. And they're like, ah, I just got to vote that way. Okay, fine. Well, but, 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 you know, you ask them about taxation. They're like, no, I really do think government should do less. Like, I mean, they're, so they're a little bit more libertarian. I mean, if somebody's being honest about that statement of the, the conservative, uh, fiscally conservative, socially liberal, that kind of means you're a libertarian. Um, but if you're a libertarian, you should really be voting for Republicans, not for or Democrats. But anyway, they, they do what they do. Um, so you've just got to convince people that like, we're, 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 we're not as crazy as, as the left has built the narrative about us, right? Sure. That, that's, we're just not. Um, and now in our side has to stop taking the bait. Cause like, I think that the, the case of Virginia might be interesting and maybe some other States are like this too. Like as soon as that threat starts to happen, the, the, the local party, and the local GOP seems to like lose their minds, right? And just and just become as crazy as as the left says they are, and then it it it, it like pushes that purpling, it it, it it quickens the purpling to an extraordinary degree, you know. I mean, it's it's nuts, you know. And you're seeing and this this kind of always happens in party politics, and like you're seeing all these. GOP parties across the country, like censor their senator, their congressman, if they voted, didn't vote the way. And it's like, just stop. I mean, just, just stop. You're being ridiculous, you know? And, and right. but that, that's unfortunately what happens at the party level. And that quickens the, uh, the purpley. When you can't allow the other side to try to compare you to your caricature, you, you need them to be able to evaluate yeah. you on your actual merits. And so I think that's kind of the thing is whenever you can caricature the other side and point to it, it makes things a lot easier, even though it's not necessarily accurate. Uh, one thing I wanted to get into as well is obviously everyone knows you for your military career. You spent a long time in the Navy, but the majority of your military career was under the Obama administration. So if I got my facts straight, I think you complete, you got your trident right towards the end of the W. Bush years. And then you maybe didn't officially get out of the Navy until Trump was in office. But the majority of it was spent with Obama at the helm. And, you know, when you talk to people that are active duty military or were active duty military during that time, 
it's kind of dubious the amount of support that they were getting from the Obama administration, and they didn't really get a lot of the, the warm fuzzies. So the question I have for you is we're so early in the Biden administration, who's essentially Obama light, but what can the military expect from Joe Biden in terms of his administration going forward? I don't think we know yet. Um, look, I, you know, I'm not so sure that I, I felt that way in the military. You're kind of detached from from the president. Uh, I, 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 it, it, I, I have a hard time making that argument that that, that that we were that we were not taking that we were ignored that we were not taken care of. It, it's a bit of a talking point. I mean, it's true in the sense of funding, um, but you know the, that's a complex set of reasoning there. Um, it's uh, the funding was always going up. Let's let's be honest, and it's um, it's 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 more complicated than that. So, look, I, I don't I don't think any president has has a has a disdain for the military or or wants the military to fail. I think there's honest and different opinions on like how, how much the military should be doing and how much they should be getting funded to do it and where that right. funding should go. That's always going to be a, a complex set of debates. I think Trump was wrong on, on some things, you know, with. I, I, and I think there were some contradictions there. Like there's this sort of mythology out there that like Trump didn't, didn't, you know, was like the first president to like bring the troops home as if there's some like moral, some kind of moral and, and, and virtuous sentiment attached to that. But I'm like, is there, you know, because I could also make a moral argument that troops should be out there protecting American interests and making sure that the terrorists don't have the time and space to plan another 9-11 attack. So don't moralize over me about the bring the troops home stuff, you know, and and um, I'm not really clear. To be honest, I'm not really clear where Biden is going with with some of this. But I do know that Trump like Trump was not some like dovish foreign policy guy. You know, it, it's 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 like a myth that's actually told by his own supporters. And it's kind of weird. <laughs> like, you know, like it really is. No, the, the thing that I was going to point out is that's kind of where you and someone like Tulsi Gabbard would differ. And I really liked, I think it was the, the last time you were on the Joe Rogan podcast where you were talking about, you know, this, I don't know, this weight that we give to the bring our troops home thing to where it's like, well, why were they there to begin with? And whenever you pull your finger out of the dam, what happens? And so I think that that's an important thing to consider as well. And it, it is a very complex issue. But one thing that we have seen about Joe Biden really certainly early in his tenure as president is he's apparently going to be the executive order president. So he set a record for first day executive orders, for first week executive orders, for first month executive orders. He's kind of going to be doing this. And even though he has the legislature, he doesn't seem that he's using them at least early. And we don't have a lot of time to get into the exact uh, orders and how damaging they might be on the ground. But what do you think the long-term impact is of some of the executive orders that we've seen from Joe Biden so far? Well, I mean, it depends on which one. Some of these are just, you know, statements, right? And like, so it, you got to take each executive order on its own. So, some are totally meaningless and, and shouldn't be, we shouldn't wring our hands over them. Um, you know, like for instance, I mean, some are like, hey, we're going to have, we, we, we want people to, to be nicer and more equitable in our federal government. You know, that's an executive order. Like, okay, like whatever. What, what, what does that even mean? <laughs> right. Um, but others actually have consequences. Like, hey, we're going to cancel the Keystone Pipeline. Um, or we're going to stop uh, leasing uh, oil and gas leases on federal land. Like now, now you're now you're really screwing with people's livelihoods. And um, so the long term effects are devastating uh, to the energy sector. That that's what's really happening with executive orders right now. So far, all the other ones are. Um, I, I I fail to see the 
the, the impacts. I don't think they're going to have huge impacts. I think overall, you're going to see a, a, a general unfriendliness to business. Uh, so, so that will have long-term impacts and it's always going to be very hard to quantify and it's going to be frustrating because the left likes to play in these sort of gray areas, right? Where they do things that are, you know, they, they, they kind of weaponize the regulatory system against business and, you know, and then, and then make up other stories as to why we're, we're not, we don't have enough growth and they use that as a reason to spend more money and to, you know, to, to stimulate the economy more. So you'll see those kind of disingenuous arguments that are difficult to fight against because it's difficult for me to quantify what their slow rolling of permitting is doing in the aggregate and, and how it's affecting your life right now. And I can, and I can, I just kind of can go blue in the face trying to tell that story, but it is true. Um, so, but, but the energy stuff is long-term consequences, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs in the long run, um, are at risk. And, uh, our electricity prices are at risk. Uh, one of the reasons we're having blackouts in Texas right now is because we don't have enough natural gas plants uh, to make up for that baseload energy when our wind turbines freeze over. And now the left might say, well, that's why we need to invest in battery storage. Well, you, you can't. I mean, it's just that there's not enough batteries. Right. And where are you going to build all these batteries? And how expensive is that going to be? And how much carbon emissions does it take to build all those batteries and mine them? I mean, or you could just build a small natural gas plant <laughs> like right. that doesn't emit that much carbon or, or build a nuclear plant, you know, like let's invest that money instead of investing 250 times more in subsidies on solar and wind than we do in nuclear. Why don't we invest in nuclear? I mean, yeah, it's expensive. It's not the economics aren't great right now, but you, you can make them better. You can make the permitting less insane. You can uh, you you can use smaller modularized next generation nuclear. You can I mean you know there's there's smarter ways to do business, guys. Um, when it, when the entire state freezes over, um, you know th th this is this is when it's kind of thrown in our face that yeah renewables sometimes aren't the answer because people are freezing. Well, and I think a lot of that comes to what you actually consider to be the real existential threats to the United States. So some of these things are more posturing, but a lot of people on the left would say the existential threats are, you know, what bathrooms people are allowed to use or what pronouns or, you know, that the world is going to end within 12 years or something like that. But from your perspective, and this isn't representative necessarily of conservatism, I want to, you know, just Dan Crenshaw's perspective. What is your opinion on the real existential threats to the United States? The real existential threat is is pushing away basic principles that founded Western civilization. Um, it's it's internal, right? We'll we'll never be taken over. America will never be dominated. Um, but we can internally dominate ourselves and sort of purposefully implode, which. Um, the radical left very clearly wants to do. Just listen to them, right? Just listen to what Antifa says. So that if you call that the radical left, and I, and I think that's about as radical as you can get, it really is nihilistic. Um, it's tear it all down, anarchy, anarchy to build a utopia. And now their utopia ends up looking a lot like Chaz or whatever other autonomous zone they build. And so I hope people are realizing how stupid that is. But, but what people also have to realize, and obviously most people don't support that, you know, so most Democrats don't support. They think it's nuts. Right. But what Democrats don't realize is that their own well-intentioned liberal values are leading to that. And it's it's it should be quite obvious, um, you know, and, and we, we really need to build a um, 
build some distinctions between intentions and outcomes. And uh, no matter how well-intentioned your, your policy is, if, if the outcome isn't working, it's time to realize that. And I think that overwhelmingly is the case with progressive policies, especially as it comes to when it comes to like socioeconomic policies. And as it comes to the gender stuff in the bathroom, you know, yeah, I mean, this is this is what happens when life is too good. You, you start to you start to create problems where there are none. Um, and I, I think it speaks to a deep psychological need for many people to to fight for some kind of injustice. Right. They're always looking for a cause. This is a very human thing to do. Um, and, um, you know, it is what it is, <laughs> but uh, it's getting dangerous um, because it's it's affecting people's lives. Absolutely. And you really go into a lot of those types of things. And this is probably a good segue into your book, because in addition to being a retired Navy SEAL and a current U.S. congressman, you added another title to the list in 2020, and that was best-selling author. Congrats on that. But you wrote the book Fortitude, American Resilience in the Era of Outrage. We actually named that as our book of the year for 2020. And we added it to our 100. Yeah, absolutely. And we added it to our 100 books that every modern Christian man should read list. Uh, So that's in in the culture and politics section. But there's one quote from the introduction of your book that I feel like sums up the general tone and tenor of that. And so I'll read it here. Quote, outrage is weakness. It is the muting of rational thinking and the triumph of emotion. Despite what you've been hearing and seeing as of late, it is not a virtue. It is not something to be celebrated, nor praised, nor aspired to. It is a deeply human emotion, even understandable at times, but rarely is it productive, virtuous, or useful. It is an emotion to overcome, not accept, and overcoming it requires mental strength. This book is about acquiring that necessary mental fortitude. So do you feel like that really summarizes the book? And does that kind of really give everyone a primer as to what they would get in those pages if they were to pick it up? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, it's a it's a solutions oriented book. Um, there's, there's a lot of books that talk about the problem. And those end up just being a long litany of complaints and they're look, they're well articulated complaints and they're complaints that need to be aired, but it's been done. Um, and I reference a lot of those works that, that do a good job of, I, I think, articulating what the problem is. And so I wanted to offer people sort, sort of a solution. So it's a bit of a self-help book. Um, and it just turned out to be, uh, unfortunately turned out to be far more relevant for the year 2020 than I would have anticipated. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't really understand what types of, well, we talked about existential threats as well, but these ideas are incredibly damaging because if you look at it, ideas in the 20th century led to tens of millions of people being murdered because people believed in certain ideas and those ideas led to actions, but also how it affects young people. You've mentioned how we need to fight at the university level. And again, don't, don't anybody like at me. I don't say fight like actual fisticuffs. We know, you know, you've talked about that at length. I mean, fight in, in the verbal sense and kind of the verbal sparring sense. But you had another quote from chapter two of your book, and it's called, Who is Your Hero? That's the name of the chapter, but it's this. Now, I wonder how a generation shaped by the comforts of victimhood culture, unaccustomed to adversity and allergic to sacrifice, with less and less desire to preserve our values and way of life, will react when we are faced with the next great war or depression or civil conflict. And so as a new father myself, I've got a nine month uh, old son. I'm thinking a lot about these types of things, like making sure that this is a resilient, tough child and that he doesn't look at victimhood as a positive thing. But from your perspective, when you look and kind of survey the younger generations coming up, does that concern you at all? Yeah, I mean, it concerns us a great deal. It should anyway. I mean, I, I made a mistake of early on in the pandemic thinking, well, you know what, at least at least now 
our young kids will have gone through some kind of trial and tribulation and probably won't probably won't be probably won't succumb to the uh, foolishness of talking about microaggressions and safe spaces and such. And I, you know, I could not have been more wrong. It's almost like it made us more sensitive and, and more politically correct and, and, and almost exacerbated the cancel culture tendencies in America. And so that just shows how, how deep the corruption has seeped, um, how deep the pathology is of this kind of cancel culture. Um, it's all the more reason to, to, to just take a real big step back and you know, gain some perspective. I mean, again, the, the, the lessons of this book are self-explanatory, you know, um, it's, it's, it's more important than ever. Uh, and it, I I think it is the, the fundamental problem in America right now, the sort of overly emotional reaction to literally everything. And, um, I I was kind of looking at the left when I wrote the book. I mean, I definitely pointed out both sides, um, throughout the book because I do want liberals to be able to read it and feel like, Hey, well, you know, this is, this is, this is uh, a fair book. But I'll be honest. If I uh, if I were if I were to write another edition right now and, and add more examples to back up the sort of principles and problems that I'm articulating, I'd have a lot of I'd have a lot more examples from the right, right? <laughs> because unfortunately, been acting a lot like the left lately, and it's um, acting weak and angry and, and outraged and cancel culture. It's it's all just bubbling up. It needs to stop. Stop being a victim. Um, you're not a victim nobody's going to save you. Um, and just because, you know, like stop taking your ball and going home, like, which everybody wants to do. This is the conversation in Georgia. Like my vote doesn't matter. I'm not doing it anymore. And it's like, well, you know what? Your vote was always one of millions and whoever you choose was never your dictator was never your King was never your Messiah. You got to fix your own problems that, you know, it, it maybe just some honesty for once. And, 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 you know, what I love to hear from politicians more is, um, Look, I can't fix everything in your life, and not everything in your life is a crisis, the way most exactly. politicians tell you. But if you but if you vote for me, it'll be slightly better than if you vote for the other guy. So that's why I want your vote, right? Setting that expectation, I think, would be pretty healthy in, in American politics. Like, I'm, I'm just we're just going to be a little bit better than them, and there is nobody who could ever be in power that will be perfect for you. Maybe for you, but you are not the people. The people, because everybody says that, right? I hear it all the time. Like, we the people are mad at you. Yeah. No, buddy, like you are. You're mad. And maybe you have maybe you have a thousand people that agree with you, like right there, right? Just right at that moment. I don't care. There's 330 million people in the in the country. So and, and if you go and talk to your neighbors, they all disagree. I mean, everybody disagrees. Like, this is life. This is a democracy. It's messy. And um, there are no dictators, and that's a good thing. And so stop pretending that like your, your, you know, your vote was supposed to fix everything. It wasn't your vote was a, was a, was a shot in the wind. You got to do it because in the aggregate it matters, but you got to, we got to set better expectations and more realistic expectations for people because that, that's, what's causing a lot of this anger is, is mismanaged expectations. Well, and it's people that are looking externally to solve their problems. Like, again, they're looking to a political candidate to solve their personal problems. And I think that really likens to my favorite chapter of your book, which is Do Something Hard. That's chapter eight. But in that chapter, you talk a lot about how people need to occasionally self-impose suffering because, you know, at a core level, they feel like they become too soft. Do you feel like the softness that people have allowed themselves to kind of overwhelm who they are as a person kind of leads to some of this victimhood as well? Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's um, like it's like anything. It's uh, if you become physically weak, it's because you didn't go to the gym. Because because going to the gym is hard and involves lifting up things that break down your muscles and then rebuild them. So, you know, I mean, it's uh, just exercising is a good way to fulfill this this basic uh, this basic rule. And um, you know, obviously, you should go beyond that. And uh, but like, it, it's a number of things. Um, yeah, mismanaged expectations, just the comforts. You know, we, we've we've become obsessed with comfort sort of sought it out as if it's a, a virtue in and of itself, but it is not. The suffering is actually a virtue in and of itself, and you should embrace it. Um, it is part of life, and we've, we've sort of tried to convince ourselves uh, that it is not a part of life and that it shouldn't be, um, and that any suffering is, is because of an injustice, and, and that there's somebody else to blame for that. And that, I think that's just a, a falsehood. That's an untruth that, and it needs to be start. It needs to stop getting told because it's, it's making people very unhappy and very weak. Absolutely. And, uh, speaking of weakness and you brought this up, so this is going to be a great place for us to end the interview, but it's the last and probably the most important question of the day. What is your max deadlift? Uh, well, ever. And now, well, I'm saying you're one of the only guys in Congress that I think that even does the exercise of deadlift. So yeah, we'll, we'll go max ever. Well, what was your max ever? Oh, max ever about 550. Um, you know, realistically now I could probably do 400. Hey, that's more than most people in Congress. Yeah. Yeah. No, probably everybody. I think Mark, Mark Wayne is the only other guy in Congress who's, who's legitimately in good shape. Mark Wayne Mullen from Oklahoma. Um, who else is legitimately in, in really good shape? There might be some new members who are pretty good. Yeah. There's a few. Hey, well, Mark represents the great state of Oklahoma, which is where I currently reside. So that is good to know. But Dan, you've been very gracious with your time. We really appreciate you letting us talk about all these different subjects. But that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I'm all good. Hey, appreciate you having me on and uh, appreciate uh, hey, appreciate you choosing the book for, uh, for this year's book. All right, Dan Crenshaw, thanks for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. All right, guys, there you go. I hope you enjoyed listening to the podcast. I'm so glad we got as much time with him as we did. So shout out to Justin over at his office. He did a great job of getting this all scheduled up. We had it moved around a bunch because the congressional voting was moved around. And then we had some different committees that were moved here or there. And then there was the power outages because of ice and snow in Houston, of all places. So his team was great getting him on the podcast. Guys, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is cultivating manly resilience, and specifically, we do that by providing you content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So here are the resources for today. The very first thing is you got to be listening to Dan Crenshaw's podcast. So I'm not going to put every link to every podcast place on here, but you need to look for his podcast. It's called Hold These Truths with Dan Crenshaw. So wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you get that. I've also got a bunch of links. We've got Dan Crenshaw's U.S. House website. We have his Crenshaw for Congress website. Also, I've got an Amazon link to the book Fortitude, American Resilience in an Era of Outrage. I've also got a link to his Daily Wire article. So if you don't know, he is doing op-eds for the Daily Wire. So I've got a link that kind of takes you to those articles. I think you do have to have a subscription to the Daily Wire, which we highly recommend in order to read those. And then I've got all his different social medias and he's got multiple different social medias because one's like kind of personal and one's like for Congress anyway. So I've got both of his Twitter accounts, both of his Facebooks, and then his Instagram. 
All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. I really do appreciate it. If you would, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher, and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, go ahead and leave us five stars wherever you're listening to this and a few sentences letting us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the rest of 2021, so if you want me to come speak on your podcast, at your men's event, at your team, at your business, whatever, hit me up, info at undaunted.life. The email is info at undaunted.life. The website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro-outro track on this podcast is our song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah. I need